Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. I've always been one to celebrate Halloween year-round, and as such, I'm often conflicted when the actual day comes. For the most part, I simply feel as though the average person visits my world for a short period of time at the end of every October. When planning for the Halloween episode of the Nighttime Podcast, I stood before the shelves that house my collection of Atlantic Canadian books, and I began to leaf through the volumes of local ghost stories that I've been reading since my childhood. I narrowed my search down to two books and realized that they shared the same author, that being Steve Vernon, and I did know that Steve lived nearby. I decided immediately I'd invite him to take part in this episode and assist me in sharing some of the stories he wrote about. I spent that weekend reading both those books trying to decide which individual story drew me in the deepest. My plan initially was to choose that one story and focus my episode on that. But when I thought about it, and the more I thought about it, I began to realize that this would make the Halloween special feel similar to my prior episodes, and I really wanted this one to be different and stand out in some way. The idea for this episode came about while I was reading the second of the two books I chose. The name of the book is Halifax Haunts. The book itself is a collection of my city's many haunted places, and as it would turn out, It wasn't any one story in the book that resonated with me, but the entire collection. With each turn of the page, I could almost feel my city grow darker, its shadows a little longer, and its stone structures feel a little bit colder. From the comfort of my reading chair, I held the setting of the stories in my mind and watched the buildings come alive with Steve Vernon's storytelling. I felt as though he was guiding me on a tour of the city I've known for so long, except Mr. Vernon was just pointing out its darkest corners. It was with that thought my inspiration struck. I headed directly to my computer and started writing him an email. First, I introduced myself and the show, and then, getting straight to the point, I asked if he'd be willing to take me along to some of his favorite haunted locations in the city of Halifax. Although he let the suspense build for a few days before he responded, Mr. Vernon ultimately did accept my offer. It would only be a matter of days later I would be picking him up in my car to begin our tour of haunted Halifax. The night of our meeting, it it couldn't have been planned better. It was a dark, stormy night. The wind was howling and the rain was unrelenting. And this weather, it prevented us from venturing out of our car, but as we parked outside the settings of Steve's story, it all seemed to fit together perfectly. For tonight's episode, my first Halloween special, I will share with you some of my night with Steve Vernon. The night began by splashing my way through the puddle-lined streets to Steve's house. Our first stop was Tim Hortons, which didn't seem to be haunted by anything more than the usual amateur political analysts and people playing with their phones. From there, we made our way to a well-known Halifax haunt. Since the city of Halifax was founded, anyone who's visited our harbor or our downtown core has been greeted by Citadel Hill. The hill itself was initially fortified by the English in 1749. Since then, the Halifax Citadel has stood tall in the center of our busiest area, keeping a watch over the growing city. 
Given the site's age and its military history, it's not surprising that the damp stone structures within the citadel serve as home to the spirits of our past. For a tour of Halifax's many haunted places, this was an obvious first stop. One of the questions is, uh, as a collector of Nova Scotia ghost stories, one of the questions I get asked is, which location in Halifax is, is the most haunted? There's some argument, some folks will say Devil's Island is, is, is the most haunted, but Devil's Island isn't quite in Halifax proper. It's in the mouth of the Halifax Harbor, but it's far enough out that I don't really count that as, as being the most haunted uh, site. The most haunted site would definitely have to be the Halifax Citadel. And I looked into it, that I could find at least two dozen different uh, ghost stories told uh, just around the Citadel itself. Partly I think that's because uh, soldiers, especially back then, when there just wasn't any, anything else to do, they, they, they would love to come up with a great deal of, of ghost stories. But uh, also, too, because this, the Citadel is a place of unfulfilled potential, let's say. This was built to defend Halifax, this fortress. And in the, 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 the 200 odd years since it was first uh, constructed, the, there's never been a shot fired in anger, unless you count maybe the. Uh, 1868 incident when a salute was fired in honor of Canada's very first birthday and an accidental cannon charge killed two soldiers and wounded several others. <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the, the story that fascinated me the most was the story of a, told in 1850 a color sergeant by the name of O'Reilly. Now O'Reilly he was a bit of a brute, and he was a bit of a bully, and you have to be that to be a sergeant. Mm. They'd usually be armed with great pole axes for close combat duty just to defend the flag, you know, because there you are, this great big flag, and, and the enemy's on the other side, and they, they, that's the first thing they see is they say, we capture that flag, that's going to demoralize them, so they're going to come for it. So O'Reilly, he made him a hobby out of terrorizing a young pirate, a private named Billy. O'Reilly would beat Billy any chance he got. He'd assign him extra duties, and, and he'd curse him out daily. And if anybody asked him why, he'd say, Hard work never hurt a lad. It'll build his character. People always say things like that, but uh, bullying, sooner or later, it's going to bring back karma. It's going to bring back comeuppance. And old Riley, he met his retribution one night when a fire broke out at 3 in the morning in a portion of the North Barracks where the officers of the 88th Regiment were quartered. The barracks were constructed out of a rosinous pine lumber, and within minutes the flames were raging uncontrollably and the entire structure was consumed. In all the confusion, no one quite noticed when Sergeant O'Reilly quietly disappeared. However, on the next morning, O'Reilly and Billy as well were nowhere to be seen. 
Some thought they were both lost in the fire. Others believed that the two soldiers had deserted in the confusion. Nobody was surprised by either theory. A soldier's life was, was hard and the desertion was just always to be expected. But in, in the winter of 1851, about seven months later, a soldier was sent to draw water from the well at Casement 18. Now the windlass through which the, the well rope turned was jammed by something, and it took three soldiers to free the, the, the jam. And once the bucket was drawn out of the well, the men were horrified to see what was tangled in the rope. It was a severed human arm, rotten and putrid from soaking so darn long in the water. The dirty white shoulder bone was still attached and was clad in the tatters of a bright red British uniform adorned with the crossed swords and flag of a color sergeant's insignia. What had happened? At first, it was thought that O'Reilly had gone to fetch water to fight the fire and had fallen into the well, and time and the natural putrefying qualities of standing well water worked their ooey-gooey magic. However, when they dragged the rest of O'Reilly's carcass out of the well, they found a bullet hole in his back. He had been murdered in cold blood, and his body had been tipped into the well. Billy had shot O'Reilly and it deserted in the ensuing confusion. Now, for years afterwards, O'Reilly's ghost has been seen standing stiffly at attention in the courtyard by the well. Some will tell you that he's armless, although I imagine he died with his arm intact. Others claim that he carries his missing arm with him, and I kind of like that picture. I mean, <laughs> I can picture the old sergeant standing there with the arm over his shoulder instead of a musket, you know, present arms sort of deal. Now, when I took a tour of this, I, I was shown where the well was, and the, 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 the fella said it was in a locked room, and there was, there was a, a, a trap door sort of affair on the, on the floor, and he said, you know, that that was nailed shut and that the well was beneath that, and you couldn't open it. It, because the fumes would be so bad that they, they, they were poisonous. Uh -huh. but, uh, it, uh, it, it, it isn't a well like what you see, you know, with the, the little stones built up. It was, it was just a hole in the ground where the water was, where they could draw water if this place was ever under siege. After making our way down Citadel Hill and narrowly dodging some stumbling 20-somethings making their way to one of our city's many pubs, Steve Vernon and I traveled just a few blocks to our next stop. The old Spring Garden Library was built in 1951 as a memorial to Halifax's many war dead. The stately building and the public grounds that surround it have been a common gathering spot in the city up until 2014 when our new central library replaced it. The old library has long been rumored to be occupied by some otherworldly presence. At present day, both the building and whatever exists inside it are now sitting vacant, awaiting some future purpose. I've always dug the, the Spring Garden Road Memorial Public Library. I, I love the new one. I go there any chance I can get, but I also had a great deal of affection for the old one. 
I loved to go and prowl through the, the, the shelves. They, they were closer. Everything felt closer in that old building. And uh, I also kind of liked, in the summer days, I'd take a book out. You know, I'd sit on one of the park benches and I'd have me some Bud the Spud french fries. <laughs> they need to get Bud the Spud over at this new library. And that, that, that'll make things complete, I think. Yeah, I think he just kind of fit in better with the old library. The new library doesn't seem... Uh like the frying fries in there? No, it, it, it's a little too uh, too, too health foody, let's say. But, uh, <laughs> I also like that big old statue of Churchill. Churchill actually visited our city a couple times late in World War II, and to all reports, he loved it. During one speech, he actually led, and I love this image, he, he led the crowd in an impromptu sing-along, bawling out such show-stopping tunes as, It's a long way to Tipperary! Oh, Canada, and God save the Queen. <laughs> he was so impressed with Halifax that as he was boarding the Queen Mary to leave, he announced, Now we know that your city is something more than just a shed on the wharf. <laughs> Churchill's roots ran much deeper than that, though. Churchill's great-great-grandmother, Anna Baker, was born in 1761 in Sackville, Nova Scotia. Winston Churchill was a blue-noser. A lot of people don't realize that the, the library wasn't always a library. Back in the early 1750s, Halifax was nothing more than a collection of rough log huts limed along a crosshatch of dirt roads. And those who could afford houses lived in them. Those who couldn't, say widows, orphans, broken soldiers, too wounded to go to war, the sick, the old, and the mentally infirmed, they tended to mill about in the daylight, foraging for whatever they could find. By 1758, Halifax decided that they had had enough of these vagrants. And the governor's council yielded to the demands of the public and they constructed a large wooden building on the property where the Spring Garden Road Library stood. The poor house uh, looked like a haunted house from an old Hammer horror movie. The one expected to see bats and maybe a couple of gargoyles and a mad woman or two up in the attic. In truth, there was a whipping post and stocks that were kept handy on the front lawn. Several times a week, a large ex-slave named Hawkins, proudly wearing the tattered, cast-off green and red uniform of a York Ranger, would tie inmates to the whipping post and attempt to whip the devil out of them. Things were rough, rough back then. The, the poor house was where you went or where you were sent if you just couldn't support yourself. Or, as the Joint Committee of Council and Assembly members put it, quote, All disorderly and idle persons and all persons who shall be found begging or practicing any unlawful game or pretending to fortune tell, common drunkards, persons of lewd behavior, vagabonds, runaways, stubborn servants, apprentices, children, and all persons who notoriously spend their time to the neglect and prejudice of their own or their family's support, all breakers of the peace, idle or disorderly people, all Sabbath breakers, all runaways, all men and women found frequenting any disorderly house or house of ill fame. In short, if you didn't fit with proper society to the poorhouse, you would go. And between the whippings and the time spent leaning in the stocks, or any other punishment the attendants dreamed up, 
a resident of the poorhouse enjoyed a very brief life expectancy. So it seemed only sensible to lay out a handy cemetery for the disposal of these residents who died while under its care. Now mind you, although St. Paul's Cemetery, the old burying ground, was opened directly across the street from the poorhouse and was considered officially to be classless in that you didn't need all that many credentials to be buried there, the folks who lived in the poorhouse were considered unwelcome, even in the graveyard. Instead, they were buried in shallow graves about the grounds of the poorhouse. Folks even began calling it the poorhouse cemetery. Halifax authorities used the grounds to bury the remains of these folks who died in prisons or those who were hanged. An entire regiment of Highlanders returning from battle in the American Revolution were stricken with a deadly fever. When most of the men died, while the commanding officers were dutifully buried in uh, St. Paul's Cemetery, the men in the ranks were quietly wrapped in shrouds and buried as quickly as possible in the poorhouse cemetery. In the year of 1814, as the bonfires of Washington's White House were slowly dying and the War of 1812 was winding down, the poorhouse was officially converted to a bridewell. This is another a term for a house of correction used mainly for the short-term confinement and punishment of petty offenders and those who were regarded as anti-social misfits, again, vagrants, itinerants, vagabonds, and loose women. But eventually the top public got tired of the weekly beatings and the all-round ambience of open-air plumbing. I mean, it was quite foul. The people wanted somewhere to walk and some roses to smell, so the provincial government agreed to turn the land over to the city of Halifax, providing that the property remained a public space in perpetuity. And I've been watching what they do with that library with keen interest because given that I'm wondering what they're going to do where it has to remain a public space. The building was torn down and the poor folk were transferred to a larger facility down on Roby and South, the Halifax Poorhouse. Phil was carted in in the hollow places and the offending speed bumps, uh, the, the people's feet that were sometimes sticking up out of the dirt were covered up. Trees and underbrush were planted and park benches were installed and the location came to be called Grafton Park and it was a small tree-shaded haven from the hubbub and commotion of city life. You could sit and picnic there and children would play and lovers could walk through the shadows while below their feet the dead slept on. Eventually, when the demands for a public library outstripped the need for picnics in the park, the government decided that the provisions attached to the property, that is the necessity to keep it a public space, would not be violated by the construction and opening of the public library. The public library was designed to be set back far enough north of the park so as to allow for the traditional walkway that is still there today. Now, library employees, especially those who work late in the basement, have sometimes reported seeing shapes and shadows of people moving about in the darkness. Breathing is sometimes heard and books are often misplaced. Is it a ghost? Perhaps all of those panhandlers that you see out there leaning against the stone wall of the library are nothing more than the spirits of those poor buried souls. <laughs>
Now, some believe that the library ghost is nothing more than an urban legend. Others are certain that it is a ghost of a long forgotten library clerk. <laughs> there is a ghost. I truly believe it to be the spirit of one of those many poor souls who were buried in unmarked graves beneath those library grounds. The nearly 800 souls reportedly buried beneath those popular facilities. One wonders just how easily they rest while you walk above the ground munching on french fries over their poor dead bones. As we departed from the old library, which looks like a haunted house, and drove past the new library, which looks like an alien megastructure, we headed towards another building with a tale to tell. For the past 95 years, Sheriff Hall has served as a dormitory for students of Dalhousie University. Undoubtedly, the large masonry building has the appearance of what one would expect from a haunted building. Having never heard the stories of Sheriff Hall, I first visited the site on my own to get a feel for the place. During that walk-by, I held my hand to the cold, damp rock that forms the exterior of the building, and I admit it did have a certain energy I didn't expect. I've been looking forward to hearing Steve Vernon share this building's haunting history with me. Shortly after World War I, Jenny Sheriff Eddy, a wealthy widow and former nurse, stepped forward in an effort to redress the problem of the lack of residence space for Dalhousie's female students. She pledged $300,000 to the building of a new female residence in honor of her parents. In 1921, the new residence was built just as close to Oxford Street as possible in order to preserve the white pine, oak, and maple trees that were common in the area. The residence has been remodeled and expanded over the years, and it continues to give good service and safe, comfortable shelter to many Dalhousie students. Over the years, the story of Penelope, the ghost of Sheriff Hall, has been told and retold. Is it hearsay or history? Back in the late 1920s, a young woman named Penelope worked as a maid up on the third and fourth floor of Dalhousie Sheriff Hall. She was, by all reports, a drab and lonely girl who spoke little and had long, straight black hair that was already smoked with a hide-and-go-seek of gray, even though she was only in her 20s. Almost like a ghost she was, one of the deans was heard to say. You hardly ever heard her say boo. There are a lot of lonely people like that in the world, and given time, even the loneliest seems to manage to find someone. Too bad Penelope happened to find the likes of Duncan. Now, Duncan was a teacher working at the college for a single year. He was a little older and was wise enough to know a good thing when he saw it. He wooed Penelope, and he sweet-talked her. But when he said that they would be together forever, he had his fingers crossed behind his back. Penelope gave her love to the man, and when his teaching term was over, he promptly packed his bags and boarded a train without so much as a buy or leave. Penelope's tears fell like bitter April rain. She had no one to turn to. To make matters worse, 
she was pregnant. She would lose her position and her reputation if word got out. They found her diary burned in a small pile of ashes beneath the hanging body of poor dead Penelope, hung high in an attic where the tattered end of the rope she tied around a beam still hangs. The students still talk about her, and some dismiss her tale as just a freshman year ghost story, but more than a few students have been greeted with a blast of unexpected cool air as they enter the fourth floor, and Penelope is still seen sometimes as a shadow walking down the hallway, and footsteps are often heard in the night. Others speak of feeling a sensation of being watched or awakening to see the shape of a young girl standing at the foot of their bed. Yeah, that's a, a cool story. The, the Penelope one was uh, everywhere I read, reading about Sheriff Hall, all of them kind of shared that same story. Mm -hmm. Were you able, ever able to find any like historical reference to it? Like, like a, you know, like a death record or any of that kind of thing? Or did you look for that? I uh, didn't look so much in the death records because often, you know, the, the, these, these records get mislaid or misnamed sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is a fact that, that Sheriff Hall, uh, they, they tend to celebrate this legend. It's, it's, it, you, you, it's either black or white sort of thing. It's either good at certain places with a reputation of being haunted. Some places will celebrate it, and some places will do their very best to bury the legend. Mm -hmm. you know, so when you find a place where the legend is celebrated, it becomes written. You know, People will hear the story, and they'll sit down, and they'll write it down in a magazine, or they'll write it down in a newspaper. And 40 years later, Somebody picks up this newspaper where somebody has written down this legend, and it becomes history. Hmm. So it, it's 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 as elusive as chasing a ghost, trying to determine if something is a fact or a fancy. From Sheriff Hall, we backtrack to the heart of downtown, to one of the city's most storied places. The well-known Halifax Club is often mentioned when discussing locations around Halifax rumored to be haunted. In the heart of the downtown business district, this three-story building faced with ornamental stone pillars and carvings does appear to have a certain foreboding quality. Historically, the club was established in 1862 by a small group of men who at the time were a who's who of Halifax's business elite. Initially, the building's purpose was to serve as a place for these men to meet. But in the years since then, it's been the setting of many dark tales and tragedies. In its most recent history, the Halifax Club has also become known as the main access point to a network of unexplained tunnels which sprawl out below our city in undetermined distance. With these tunnels also connecting to Citadel Hill and said to extend even below the harbor, their purpose is also a deep mystery. Given our city's haunted history, I wonder if these halls are empty. The Halifax Club is a hangout for high society. Like the, like the song says from Cheers, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. 
Now, since 1862, the Halifax Club has been providing just that service for the staunch old nabobs in our city. It was back then uh, a place for bachelors and husbands alike to congregate and just chill out. You could chow down in style, play a few hands of cards, and hang with your homeboys. That's just what the gentlemen of Halifax society would do with their leisure time back then in the 19th century. You could name such names as Mathers, Bile, Ammon Street, uh, Roby, Uniac, James C. Cogwell, William Kennard. Practically every second street in Halifax is named over a member of the, the Halifax Club, the founding members. These men were a cross-section of Halifax's power structure, representing uh, factions of the financial, political, and military establishments. The contract for constructing the Halifax Club was given to George Lang, the local builder responsible for the Sebastopol Mon Monument in St. Paul's Cemetery, the old burying ground, and also the courthouse on Spring Garden Road. Lang uh, proved more than worthy of the task. He constructed the Halifax Club in an Italian Renaissance style with heavy reliance on the adornment of a series of Doric and Ionic pillars. In a word, it was pompous uh, architecture. The club thrived over its first decade, building a membership of what they decided was uh, truly Halifax's elite. Very few resigned mostly over petty squabbles and uh, card bets. Occasionally some gentleman would need to be reminded to pay his bill and propriety and the reputation of its membership were given the utmost priority. In 19th century Halifax, the inevitable scandal occurred. Social decorum back then and dignity counted for much. Nevertheless, scandal occasionally kicked in the door of the Halifax Club and put its big muddy feet smack dab upon the tea table. In 1870, the house steward, James Foreman, was discovered dipping into the club's funds. The house steward was a position of some modest power. He lived in the club and he had complete custody of the liquor cellar, the china, the cutlery, the furniture, and the provisions of the club. He supervised the cook, the housekeeper, servants, and the housekeeping account. When the active committee discovered that Foreman had been helping himself to some of the housekeeping money, they demanded that he make good on his missing funds, after which they would be, be, he would be allowed to... Uh, quietly resign. However, Foreman had other ideas. He broke into a club meeting, screaming and babbling curses, and he stabbed himself repeatedly with a carving knife. I'm not sure what the fellow was thinking. I mean, did he think that that was going to show them something? <laughs> he, he stabbed himself repeatedly with a carving knife before jumping out of one of the second-story windows. Foreman may have botched his embezzlement career, but he was doing a marvelous work in the realm of self-destruction. Thomas Riddell described the incident in his book Halifax, Warden of the North, as follows. No less startling in its way was a rude disturbance some months later in the dim recesses of the Halifax Club where the steward, 
yielding to an impulse that must have assailed him many times before, brought the members out of their chairs by stabbing himself repeatedly with a knife and jumping out of a window. The wretched man died, but fortunately, the club recovered. <laughs> it's good to have your priorities straight. <laughs> now, the club also has a ghost and a story to go with it. The facts of this case are strongly based on hearsay and recollection, but the story has been told around Halifax for an awful lot of years. It seems that one of the lesser-known members of the club was unlucky enough to suffer a heart failure while he was indulging in a few bedroom antics with a lady of the evening in a brothel one street over. The lady was quite a favorite of club members, and the very last thing she desired was the scandal that would ruin her already tawdry reputation, and worse yet, alienate her with the members of the Halifax Club. Some of these members, as I said, were her very best customers. She's a practical lady. Thinking quickly, she called the house steward, who assembled an emergency task force of club members and trusted servants. They stumbled and stole over to her place of business, and they picked up the body of the dearly departed gentleman, and they carried the body back to the Halifax Club. I, I, I just like to picture that. That, may, well, that would make a heck of a sight, a caravan of nervous uh, servants and half-drunken gentlemen, and I'm certain they dropped the poor soul more than a few <laughs> times on a road along the way. But I don't think he or they were feeling any pain in the first place. And by the time they got, uh, got him there, they left his body on the front steps of the club and then stepped over them as they made their way back home. In the morning, the body was found. The local papers made a big deal out of the fact that the old gentleman had died so close to the club he loved so dearly. Since then, various members of the club still swear that they have smelled his pipe tobacco and heard his heavy footsteps, especially late at night. One wonders if he isn't still looking for the lady he left behind or perhaps he's just looking to pay his last barbell. Our last stop on our tour of Haunted Halifax was a surprise to me. When Steve Vernon chose a local golf course, I had to scratch my head a little. I've never heard tell of a paranormal presence in the sprawling fields of the Ashburn Golf Club. This was a stop I was really excited about. And here's why Steve chose it. Is it a story about the, the golf course or the actual building on the golf course? No, it, it is a story that reputedly took place on the golf course itself. Very cool. Call this one a strange old lady. According to the club's promotional material, the Ashburn Golf Club has been an integral part of the Halifax landscape since Governor General Lord Bing drove the very first ceremonial ball from the first tee of the old course back in 1923. However, one of the things that not a lot of people realize that the golf course is apparently haunted. An article written by one E. Wetmore and published in the pages of the March 1954 edition of the Mail Star 
tells that a late summer visitor walking the golf course in the late 1930s encountered an old woman in a long flowing shawl the color of burnt umber. Not strange enough for you yet? Give me a minute. I'm cooking. It seems that the old woman had no feet at all. Her legs seemingly ended at her ankle bones. Stranger yet was the fact that the old woman was actually hovering about two or three inches above the grass. She had no shadow, as far as I could tell, the witness reported, and she just sort of hung there as if she were suspended upon a rope of some sort. The witness tried to approach her, but she wrapped the shawl about her head as if she were hiding from something. She waved her free hand wildly in the air, clearly indicating that she did not wish to be disturbed. I couldn't help feeling that she needed my help somehow, the witness went on. I tried to get closer to her, but she glided into the woods and vanished. Hang on those two words, will you? Glided, vanished, those strange choices of words. When the story got out, the golf course owners were quick to investigate. It seemed that this eerie spectral woman was actually the ghost of an old widow who had been found dead upon a golf course. According to the local residences, the widow had lived on Dutch Village Road just across from the golf course's entrance. She had lived there with her son and her daughter-in-law. Apparently she had never been the same since she lost her husband suddenly. He had been struck with a heart attack in the middle of a golf game. As a direct result, his old wife suffered from melancholy and bouts of dementia, and she would often be found wandering through her neighbor's yards, up and down the streets, or into the golf course where her husband had loved to play. One cold late summer morning, she wandered into an ash grove on the golf course, and she twisted her shawl about her neck, and she hanged herself from the branch of one of the tallest ash trees. She was found a day later, her feet just dangling a few inches from the ground, and the crows were circling above her over the branches. Folks still see her every now and then. She always looks a little panicked as if she's lost something. Some describe her as a little angry, as if she were upset that her husband went and died without asking her permission. Still, she has never harmed anyone or given any sign that she might want to. I've looked for details and I've asked some folks at the Ashburn Golf Course just where on this course this whole thing might have happened. But the details have been lost to time and tale-telling. Nevertheless, folks say that the leaves of the ash grove turn the shade of burnt umber in the late summer as autumn begins her long and lonely walk towards winter. That's a cool story. It's one of those stories that has been buried rather than celebrated. Yeah, I've in searching Ashburn Golf Club, ghost, paranormal, haunted, I could find no result. That's was one of those stories I, I had to dig deep for, you know, it's, uh, in hindsight, it wasn't that hard to find. You just had to flip through, uh, you know, about uh, 40 years of newspaper to get to it.
That will conclude our tour of Haunted Halifax. These tales are but a few of the many told in our city. If you visit Halifax, or if you're fortunate enough to live here, when you spend time in the many century-old buildings we have, remember, people have been dying in them long before you came around, and some of the dead haven't yet left. If you'd like to hear more of Steve's storytelling, check out any one of his many great books. I personally recommend Halifax Haunts, which he read some excerpts from tonight, as well as Haunted Harbors, which includes many more great ghost stories from around Nova Scotia. If you're interested in hearing more content from the Nighttime Podcast, you may be interested in joining the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 per month, you'll have access to a monthly bonus episode. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, on behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the show's current patrons and welcome the newest members to the group. Krista, Kelly, Kyle, Don, Mike, Lee, Sarah, and my only listener on Google Play, Mark Sparrow. Without you all, the production of this show would be impossible. I would like to thank you for listening to the Nighttime Podcast. If you enjoy your time here, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you prefer. To stay up to date with the show, please visit my site, nighttimepodcast.com. Follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash nighttimepodcast. And on Twitter, my handle is at nighttimepod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I always enjoy hearing from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to talking to you again soon. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. This is Steve Ernan saying... Thanks for listening to the Nighttime Podcast. New on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.